Praise the Lord. Good to see everybody. Welcome if you're new. It's good to have you here this morning. Can I have you all turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Now let me say it again for the sake of the new folks. We usually just take a book and go through it verse by verse. That's our normal way of teaching here at Calvary. The Lord laid it on my heart a couple months ago to take a book uh, like Philippians and uh, develop it topically and uh, around the theme, which is joy. Who doesn't need joy in these days? That's kind of why I was drawn to Philippians. And so uh, I studied all, I found all the places that Paul mentions joy, rejoice, joy. And I studied the passages to find out what the context was, and then I developed them into main points. So, so far we've looked at joy in fellowship, joy in proclaiming the gospel, joy of faith, joy in unity, and that then brought us to number five, joy in service. So let's read verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so several times in this passage, Paul mentions joy, says rejoice, and connects it to service, to service. Now, as we have looked at this over the last couple of weeks, we have seen the heart of a servant, which we studied John 13. And then the principle of servanthood we studied Matthew 20. And this morning it brings us to the humility of a servant. The humility of a servant. Look at Philippians 2 and let's read verses 3 and 4. Where Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his interests, for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, guys, in a nutshell, this is what practical Christianity is all about. Putting others above ourselves. Easy to say, hard to do. Putting others above ourselves is, the, is really the nutshell or the basic Christian point of living in this world. Um, and as we studied in John 13, it's essential for our joy. We're talking about joy and service, okay, which obviously uh, is important. Paul uh, singled that out in this passage we just read. But um, if we're going to put others first and serve them, we have to understand that in the process we're going to receive joy, but only if we do it with the right heart. If we're doing it because we want joy as a direct pursuit, then our motive is self-centered. If I do it, serving others because I love Jesus and I want to help others and help them be all that they can be for God, then the joy will be there. 
Now, this, of course, would be impossible without humility, without humility, or as Paul called it, lowliness of mind, which is the opposite of pride and selfishness, which he described in verse 3 of Philippians 2 as selfish ambition and conceit. So, guys, humility is the key to what Paul is saying here. But what is humility? Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. We've already developed this. But for the sake of the new folks, I'm just going to touch on it. What is humility? Well, listen, true humility isn't going around putting yourself down. A lot of Christians think that being humble means you go around putting yourself down all the time, right? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm a worthless worm. I'm a wretch. Or as one pastor liked to say, I am a vomitous pus sack. Now that takes self-loathing to a whole new level. Yikes. Guys, sometimes this is nothing more than pride masquerading as humility. Jesus said, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus was the epitome of humility. But he certainly wasn't a worthless worm. And he didn't go around putting himself down to everyone he came in contact with. Listen, genuine uh, humility isn't self-loathing, as we said. It's not beating yourself up all the time. Humility isn't the same as low self-esteem. Genuine humility doesn't focus on self at all. In other words, it doesn't put self down. It doesn't lift self up. True humility simply ignores self altogether while it focuses on others. Genuine humility simply says, you are more important to me than I am to me. You are more important to me than I am. And that's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself esteeming others better than ourselves you know andrew murray one of my favorite authors um, in his book humility the journey towards holiness he talked about how that we can say we love god all we want but if we're not loving people made in his image we don't really love him john asked the question how can we love god whom we have not seen if we can't love our brethren whom we have seen. And Murray makes a good point. He says, look, we all think we're humble. We all can get in God's presence and pray and act all humble and think we're really reaching that level of humility that pleases God. But then we go out into the world and we're rude. We're, we're, we're selfish. We put people down. We push ourselves forward. We, we do all kinds of things that would indicate, no, 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 we're not self-humble uh, at all. We're quite selfish, as a matter of fact. And he goes on to say, look, all these things that we do in the presence of other Christians and, and, and even when we're in the presence of God that we kind of act all humble. If you're not really living that way in your life as you go out into the world, it's, it's meaningless. I'll talk about that more in a second because I want to develop this a little more. I just want to just kind of throw that out for your consideration. He did say this is something that God needs to work in us. Um, but Jesus gave us a great example of humility when he washed the disciples' feet. We studied that in John 13. 
And that he said, I'm giving you an example to follow about what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ, humble, and if you do these things, your joy will be full. Guys, it is sad that so much of the energy, time, and work of the church is sapped away by having to deal with hurt feelings, resentments, murmurings, retaliation, all due to pride. All due to pride. The opposite of humility. Guys, a lack of humility is the cause of all of the problems in the body of Christ, including and especially in marriage. Instead of serving one another and esteeming others better than ourselves, the church is caught up in the pursuit of self-esteem rooted in self-love and has embraced the misguided teaching. I first have to learn to love myself before I can love anyone else. By the way, that didn't start with Jesus. That didn't even start with the Bible. That started with an atheistic psychologist named Eric Fromm back in the 40s. He wanted to get more Christians in his practice. Figured, hey, that's a great untapped segment of the population. So he read the Bible and he kind of pulled things out and he pulled out the verse where Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. And he twisted, it's just like the devil to take something in God's word and twist it in such a way as it still sounds biblical, but it's exactly the opposite of what Jesus or the other apostles said. Paul said, look, we already love ourselves. Nobody ever hated his flesh. We care for ourselves. We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. We, we recreate and rest ourselves. Look, we know how to love ourselves. Now love others like you love yourself. Worry about their welfare as much as you worry about your own. And that's the idea. But no, the teaching has come into the church, and the church has bought into it. You can't really learn to love anybody else until you first learn to love yourself. That is a lie from the devil. That is scripture twisted to get us running around in circles and doing the very opposite of what God told us to do. Guys, I'll tell you this. You focus on self. I can't learn to love anybody else until I learn to love myself. Self-love is never going to be realized. You know why? Because self is never satisfied. And that's the, that's the bottom line. If Satan can get us to spend all our time trying to learn how to love ourselves, guess what? We won't have any time left to love anybody else but us. And so the Christians who have bought into this mentality that they first need to learn to love themselves before they can love anybody else are Christians, listen, who never mature, who never mature, or move beyond the petty bickering and contentions that arise from a carnal mindset as opposed to a Christ mindset, or as Paul called it, the mind of Christ in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's a mind of a, of a mature, spirit-filled believer. body of Christ is full of carnal Christians. If they're really saved, some Christians don't really grow. Sometimes they don't put any effort into their walk. Sometimes they go to churches that don't teach the word, really. Sometimes they still hang out with people that are reinforcing worldly thinking. I don't know. There's a lot of people, though, that are Christians, and I believe they really are. Some of them profess to be saved, and they're not. But there's a lot of folks that I think are really saved, but they're still very carnal. They're fixated on this life. And as such, it is pretty much about them. But a spirit-filled, mature Christian, not perfect, but mature, 
understands that they want to be more and more like Jesus every day. It, the, the desire is, I want to be like you, Lord. Please help me to be less selfish today and more like you, selfless. And, and, and the more we reinforce that thinking in our minds and stay in the word and stay in fellowship with other believers and in prayer with the Lord, you're going to see your thinking is going to start go, undergoing a transformation. That's why Paul said in uh, Romans 12, and this is really spiritual warfare, don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Everything starts with the way you think. Everything starts with the, that's why you have to feed your mind the word of God. As you feed it into your head, then you have to bring it down into your heart by making a commitment to the truth you've learned in the word through your studies or through going to church or whatever. It can't just go in one or out the other. James says, don't fool yourself. You, you think you're coming to church, that's all you need. You're hearing the word. Don't deceive yourself by just thinking, all you need to do is hear the word. Be doers of the word. That's what, what the goal is. The goal of learning is always living. Learning is not an end in itself. It, it's a means to an end, and that is maturity, fruit-bearing, and so on. But those that don't cultivate the mind of Christ by growing are going to be locked into this never-ending carnality. The Corinthian Christians were like this. They were like this. They were always pushing themselves first. They were always fighting for dominance. Who's going to be the greatest? Okay, this kind of thing. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, Brethren, I, I wish I could speak to you as to spiritual people. Mature. But you're not. You're carnal. You're, you're babes in Christ. For where there is envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like unsaved people? Guys, there is, there is great freedom that comes when we stop striving and fighting for our rights or to get ahead or to get that position that we want in the company, we're striving, we're putting others down, stepping on people to get ahead of others, there's great freedom when you stop all that as a believer. And all you do then is you stop fighting for your rights and you simply start serving people and letting God bring you to whatever he wants for your life He'll lift you up in his time, but he'll do it, and he will lead you to his perfect will for your life. Again, Murray said, see that you humble yourselves and take no place before God or men. Don't put yourself in the church into a position of honor or in your, your company, but that of a servant. That's the only thing you should, we should be striving for is to be a servant. That is your work. Let that be your one purpose in prayer. God is faithful. Just as water seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds the creature empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. <clears throat> he that humbles himself, that's our part, shall be exalted. That's God's part. By his mighty power and in his great love, he will do it. Now, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus exemplified. But we're living in a world and at a time when humility is no longer valued it's not seen as a virtue it's a weakness you know as a as americans we started moving away from the concept of humility pretty quick the church hung on to it because the church for many years was teaching the bible and so we know from reading the bible how important humility is but even the church now is you know the apostasy is beginning to take hold 
And Paul said in the last days, people would not want to hear sound doctrine. They want their ears tickled. They're going to find churches that are going to tell them what they want to hear, how I can be successful, how I can have the biggest house in town and the nicest cars, and, and so on and so forth. Again, that carnal mindset is being elevated to a virtue instead of something that we should be repenting of and seeking to get away from. But a lot of people would ask, Pastor, why, why would I do what you just said? Why, why would I let others take advantage of me? Why would I let somebody else step in front of me and get that promotion rather than me fighting for it? I deserve it. I mean, you're talking about humility. Why would I even want that in my life? That's weakness. Why would you want it? Because Jesus told us it was something that we needed to walk in. It was something that he himself lived in his life that says to the rest of us, this is the way you live. He said, and we studied it last week, Matthew 23, 11, he who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom has to be the servant of all. Have you turned to Luke 22? We didn't read this one last time. Luke 22. And let's pick it up in verse 24. Because last week's message and this week's message kind of dovetail together. Kind of read some of the same scriptures. But let's listen. Luke 24, verse 20, excuse me, Luke 22, verse 24. Now there was also a dispute, a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. So his, his disciples had this running argument, his whole ministry, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? We talked about that last time. And they're having it again. And so he stops and he starts to address this carnality. And he said in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise, exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. The younger was never, in that culture, age was everything. So the father was the patriarch. He was looked up to, called Lord in many households. So, verse 26, but not so among you, on the contrary, he who is greatest among you, uh, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? And yet I am among you as one who serves. The God of the universe serving us. I was telling first service as a passage in the Old Testament about when we finally are taken to heaven and we are seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is going to gird himself and wait on us. Can you imagine that? He is going to gird himself and he's going to wait on us. But that shouldn't surprise us. He is the greatest servant who has ever lived. But listen, you talk about greatness. The world, greatness is how many people you are over. How many people you have authority over. God says greatness in my eyes is how many people you put yourself under to serve. And guys, how little this is preached today and how seldom it is practiced in the church today. That's why it's getting harder and harder to find people who are willing to serve because humility is not being stressed or valued in the church anymore. It used to be a virtue. Now it's more of a 
Yeah, but it's in the Bible, but, you know, we don't ever talk about it. You know, a lot of Christians are looking to be served. And so they seek out churches that offer the most services and amenities where, uh, where they can be constantly blessed by the service of others while they themselves never lift a finger to serve or bless anyone else. The result is that the body of Christ and the kingdom of God are being cheated out of servants, servants that help to strengthen the body and build the kingdom. We have read Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16 numerous times. I'll let you read that again on your own. But let me paraphrase. Paul is saying, look, we are the body of Christ. And as such, like a physical body, each part of the body has certain functions. And when everything is working the way God designed, the body is healthy, the body can move, it can work, it can do all kinds of things. But if certain parts of the body are not working properly, if the signals from the brain are not reaching certain parts of the body so they're not able to move, that body is going to at very least be spastic, possibly a handicap. It won't be able to do uh, what God designed that body to do. The same is true with the body of Christ. That's not out of Ephesians. I'm bringing in 1 Corinthians 12 also. But, but the whole idea that Paul said, look, there are many members in the body of Christ. God has given many different people different gifts. There are the teaching gifts. And those people are, are called by God to teach the rest of the body the word of God, the principles of, of God. And then the rest of the body takes that information, internalizes it, uses it to grow and then go out into the world to reach the world for Jesus Christ, the Great Commission. But if people in the body don't do their share, as he put it, they don't do their part. They're always sitting around being spectators, never out there being servants. The body's going to suffer, the local church. And if enough local churches suffer, the whole body of Christ will say in America. So guys, when Christians don't serve, not only are they cheating the body of Christ, they're also cheating themselves. Because when God saved us, he gave each of us gifts. That's a given. It's not, do I have gifts? It's, what are your gifts? We all have been given gifts. Why? Because we're all called to serve. There are no spectators in the body of Christ. Not really, realistically, not, not as God designed it. Sure, there are today. The church has made it so easy to be spectators. Some churches' philosophy of ministry is, you just come and sit and let the professionals do the work of ministry. No. We're all called to serve. And when people don't use their gifts in service and don't get plugged into the local church to use those gifts, they dry up. They dry up. And they begin to wonder why I have no joy, why I have no peace, why I'm just basically hanging on. Because you're not giving. You cannot. God never designed us to be a reservoir that he pours his spirit in and that's it. It stays there. Do you know... You, of course, have all heard of the Dead Sea. You know what the Dead Sea? The Dead Sea is so dead, not even a microbe lives in it. Now, in the kingdom age, that's going to completely change. God's going to heal it, and there are going to be fishermen down there. Ezekiel talks about this. But right now, it's a Dead Sea. You know why it's a Dead Sea? Because it only has an inlet. It has no outlet. Everything comes in stays. There's no outlet. 
we need an outlet for all the stuff we're taking in. And the outlet is service. And if you're not serving, you're going you're gonna to become dead inside, spiritually speaking. I'm not saying you're, lose, I'm not saying you're gonna lose your salvation. I'm just saying you won't have that vitality and life and the abundant life that Jesus promised if you're not plugged into a local church using your gifts. Oh, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what my gifts are. Look around for any ministry, anything. I don't care if it's, you know, uh, vacuuming cake out of the rug after church, whatever it might be. Look around, find something that needs to be done and do it. And as you're faithful in doing that, you're going to find out God's going to open up doors for more ministry. We'll talk about that more at the end. All right. Now starting in verse 5. Paul goes on to use Jesus as the ultimate example of humility and the mindset that led him to be the quintessential servant of all time. Verse 5, and I'm going to emphasize it. Let this mind or mindset be in you. Of everything that enters your mind, let this dominate. Let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was Jesus' mindset that Paul is referring to? Well, we don't have to guess. He goes on to tell us. Verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, actually the Greek is slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Guys, the one characteristic that best describes the life of Jesus was humility. You know why? Because Jesus allowed that to dominate. But Jesus is God. Humility is an attribute of God. It's listed among the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, and so on. Those are all attributes of God. We can counterfeit those things, but we can't really manufacture what belongs to God and God alone. So we can manufacture love. In other words, self-love. Or loving those who love us. Human love. But we can't walk in agape love because it's not in us. Or peace, or true joy, or whatever else on that list. These are all attributes of God. When you got saved, Peter tells us, you became a partaker of God's divine nature. The Spirit of God moved in, and he poured himself into us when we got saved. And that is evidenced by the fact that now the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow, which are all the attributes of God indicating God lives inside of me. Humility is one of those attributes. And I'll tell you this, there is no way, and Murray goes on to say this in his book, there is no way you're going to be able to... Sure, we can kind of show humility here and there once in a while, especially if we're in God's presence. But if you're going to walk in the kind of humility Jesus walked in, he has to live his life through you. And that comes when you draw close to him each and every day. Stay in the word. Stay close to him. And as you keep falling more and more in love with him, he keeps living his life more and more through you. And as he does, because you get saved, you get this war going on. The flesh, the old nature, fighting with the new nature, the spirit. And they're constantly slugging it out. But we get to choose who, which one dominates. Walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
And the more you walk in the Spirit, the more you fill yourself, your heart, your mind and heart with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, the more the Spirit pushes out more and more of that junk that we call the old nature, the flesh. But one author put it well. He said, and I quote, What was the incarnation but his humility in emptying himself and becoming man? What was his life on earth but humility in taking the form of a servant? What was his death on the cross if not the supreme demonstration of humility? He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Even his ascension says that he humbled himself and therefore God highly exalted him in heaven. You can't be lifted up unless you first bring yourself down. The fact that God raised up Jesus indicates he was first made low. He first condescended to come walk among us. We call it the incarnation. Look, everything about the life and ministry of Jesus spoke of humility. I'm shocked that the church is no longer emphasizing this. It was, it was the heart of the Christian life for many, many centuries. But the more we have moved away from God in our pride, selfishness, and trying to spiritualize selfishness and greed and health and wealth, gospel, and whatever else, the more we have moved away from humility as a virtue. But everything about the life of ministry of Jesus spoke of humility. I mean, what could speak of humility more than a lion becoming a lamb? I mean, think about that. The lion of the tribe of Judah becoming the lamb of God. The sovereign of the universe becoming the sacrifice for our sins. Again, Jesus said, learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart. Murray put it this way. He said, and I quote, I cannot too greatly impress upon my readers the need of realizing the lack there is today of humility within Christian circles. There is so little of the meek and lowly Lamb of God in those who are called by his name. We must study the character of Christ until our souls are filled with the love and admiration of his lowliness. We must believe that when we are broken under a sense of pride and our inability to cast it out, Jesus Christ himself will come to impart this grace. And it is a, a gift of grace. will impart this grace as a part of his wonderful life within us, end quote. Don't go home today and say, i got to really grunt and strain to produce more humility. I think he's right. You don't need more humility in your own strength. You need more Jesus. And he'll live his life through you, the epitome of humility. Guys, again, Jesus was the ultimate example of servanthood. He laid down his life on Calvary's cross to serve fallen sinners so that we could be saved, the innocent, dying for the guilty. Turn to Matthew 16, which we also read last time. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? His cross. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And yet, what happens is so often, okay, uh, I need Jesus. Churches, you know, want to give people Jesus, but not the full strength Jesus, a watered-down version, which means a watered-down cross. 
because they don't know what the Bible teaches. A lot of folks are not going to be atheists or agnostics. They've grown up in church. Maybe Awanas when they were kids, Bible camp when they were older. They've grown up in church. They know what the Bible says, and they believe it's true. But what they try to do, if they don't really want to go full on for Jesus, they try to have Jesus and the world too. They try to try to serve two masters. That never works out well. Not the least of which because Jesus said you can't do it, right? So people try to, I, I guess, cheapen the cross in some way. It reminds me of a, something I read years ago. At a religious festival in Brazil, a missionary was going from booth to booth examining each merchant's wares. He saw a sign above one booth, cheap crosses. He thought to himself, that's what many Christians are looking for these days, cheap crosses. My Lord's cross was not cheap. Why should mine be? Again, let this mind or mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that he was willing to die for people who didn't love him, people who are his enemies, right? We have trouble dying to self when it comes to our families when they upset us or wrong us. One pastor said, remember that, let this mindset be in you, that was also in Christ Jesus. Remember that next time you think you're being unfairly treated by God because he asked you to give too much, to forgive too much, to put up with too much, and to sacrifice too much. Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. If there's going to be blessings, there must first be some, be some bleedings. You know? Paul summed up his ministry when speaking to the Ephesian elders... In Acts 20, and he, I just will read to you just a, a quick synopsis. He said, guys, you know from the very first day I came to you there in Asia Minor, in what manner I always lived among you. This was Paul's pattern. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, the leaders in Israel wanted to kill Paul, and how I kept nothing back from you that was helpful, but I proclaimed everything. Everything you needed to grow, everything you needed in your walk with Christ. Didn't matter how I was treated. Didn't matter if I eventually would, would be killed. My whole goal was to serve you, to put you first. And I did it with all humility. All right. Quickly, let's finish up this topic on joy and service. I'm going to have you turn to 1 Corinthians 4. I'm going to call this last point the requirements of a servant. The requirements of a servant. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, again, Corinth was a church full of division, backbiting, gossip, everyone fighting for their superior place over the others. So Paul stops, writes him a letter. He addresses these various factions in the church of Corinth. And he called himself, Peter and Apollos, servants of Christ. But you have to understand that Greek word. 
One author described Paul's use of the word servants this way. Servants, huperites, means literally under rowers. Under rowers. Originally indicating the lowest galley slaves, the ones rowing on the very bottom tier of the ship. They were the most menial, unenvied, and despised of slaves. From that meaning, the term came to refer to subordinates of any sort, to those under the authority of another. Now, here's the idea. You imagine one of these big ships, okay? Um, they had sails, but in case there was no wind, then the slaves on the third deck below. So you have the top deck, a middle deck they use for whatever, and then you have this third deck. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? No air, no windows, and if you were a third-class galley slave, all you did was row and row, and that's what you did. It wasn't a very sought-after job, okay? Uh, nobody wanted it. They made people take it. They were slaves, right? They had no choice. But guys, a galley slaver under rower didn't set the course. He didn't sail the ship. He simply served the captain of the ship. And Paul is saying, we are not the captains of the ship, the kingdom of God, but only the galley slaves who are under orders, and no slave is greater than another slave. And the same thing is true with servants of Christ. Every time you think of yourself as a servant of Christ, the Greek word is actually slave. They're, they're you know, doulos, always being slave, okay? Doulos. Every time you think of yourself as a servant of Christ, think of yourself as a third class galley slave. You have no rights. You don't call the shots. You don't run the show. You're there to take orders from your captain. Hebrews 2.10, the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And believe me when I tell you, he's a much better captain than I was of my life. Before I got saved, I was the captain. And it didn't go so well. Right? Amen? Amen. I mean, good heavens. It's only by the grace of God we didn't sail over a, I don't know, into a pit or something. We, many of us did. He pulled us out. But he knows where he's going. He knows where he's lead. He knows what he's gifted us to do and where he's going to finally lead us. He's the captain. I don't have to worry about that. Just every day I get up and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? What do you have for me today? I, I'm yours. Just show me what you want me to do. Now, he also mentioned stewards. We'll end with this. A steward, guys, was a servant that had been put in charge of another man's household. Think of Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph was the a steward of Potiphar's house. Potiphar was an important guy, uh, a higher up in Pharaoh's army, away on affairs of the state oftentimes, and he needed a manager who would run his house. He had multiple slaves. They had to have food. Supplies had to be bought. Uh, 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 jobs had to be uh, uh, doled out. Uh, somebody had to run the show. All right. Joseph was that man in, in Potiphar's house. But in Galatians 6.10, uh, the family of God or the kingdom of God is called the, the, um, the household of faith. We have been placed in charge of various aspects of God's household. All right? We're stewards. We don't own anything. It's all his. But someday, if I'm faithful, I'm going to stand before him, and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful what? Servant. 
You were faithful in a few things. Now enter into the joy of your Lord. And at that moment, as Paul said in Romans 8, uh, as a child of God, I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Someday, I'm not going to serve him anymore. I'm going to reign with him on his throne. Until that time, I'm a steward. A servant, yes, but also a steward. I don't own anything. But I simply take care of what belongs to God. And a major requirement in stewardship was that a steward needed to be found faithful. Faithful. One pastor said, Man values cleverness, wisdom, wealth, and success. But God is looking for those who will be faithful to Jesus in all things, in whatever he gives you to do. You don't have to turn to this. I'll read it to the NLT. Luke 16, verses 10 and 11. Jesus said, if you are faithful in the little things, God knows you're going to be faithful in the large things. If you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest in greater responsibilities. And if you are, untr if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? So that's why I say the Bible says don't despise the days of small things. Because there really are no small things in the eyes of God. It's, the only thing is faithful service. Faithful service. And I am convinced if you are faithful in doing whatever God has called you to do, no matter how menial by man's standards, you're going to be rewarded as anyone who was faithful in whatever God called them to do. I'll finish with a true story. You've heard me mention this before. But years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and Dave Hawking was one of the speakers. Now, Dave uh, has been to our church. He's taught at our men's retreat, and so I know Dave pretty well, Dave Hawking. And um, in those days, it's going back into the 80s now, he pastored a very large church in California. Since then, he's become a conference speaker, goes all over the world doing conferences and things. But in those days, he was a pastor. And a uh, good man taught right from the word, but every service he would end with a gospel presentation. And then he would say, and they had pews in their church, and behind the pews there were little ho holders for visitor cards and little holes that pencils would be put in. And he would say, look, if you're, if you're new with us, do you want to know more about the church? Fill out a visitor card. Uh, if you want to know more about receiving Jesus as your Savior, fill out this, the card and somebody will contact you this week, right? Every service. It dawned on him one week. Who sharpens the pencils that people use to write out to receive Christ, to find out more about the church so they can come? And Somebody's got to be sharpening them pencils. I don't even know who does that. So instead of asking like the secretary, who does the pencil sharpening on, you know, he decided one Saturday he was doing some work in the church he decided he was going to just hang around. He figured it was Saturday night, getting ready for Sunday. So he just shut down the lights, and he kind of stood behind a wall looking into the sanctuary. After a little while, he heard the door open, and the lights come on. And he sees this little man walking up and down the aisles behind the pews and taking the pencils out putting them in a little box, taking them over, and he could hear the pencil sharpener going. Faithfully, every week. 
Dave said, I, I wanted to start crying. Here I stand before thousands of people every week. Everyone knows my name. Everyone honors my position as pastor. Here's a man who nobody knows. I didn't even know. He comes in every Saturday night, gives up his time to sharpen pencils so people the next day can fill out a visitor card or find out more about Jesus. I'll tell you this. A lot of people probably, they don't know his name. They don't know what he does for the Lord. But God knows. And someday, he's going to stand before the Lord. And the Lord is going to say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'm convinced he's going to be rewarded as anyone who was faithful in their ministry for the Lord, whether it was Billy Graham or Greg Laurie or Luis Palau or Dave Hawking. It's only required. Aren't you glad God doesn't reward us based on the size of our ministries? It's just how faithful we are. It's required of a steward that they be found faithful. There are no insignificant ministries in the body of Christ. Some of the things that we think are insignificant, try removing the people that do them and see how well the church runs. We need that. And so God give us the humility to say, no ministry is too small, definitely not beneath me. If Jesus could wash feet, who am I to think I can't clean a toilet once in a while or grab a vacuum and, and vacuum the sanctuary? God, give me humility to follow in your footsteps, Jesus. Because I get too proud. We start thinking who we are. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. We are all third-class galley slaves. Don't forget that. Because when you forget it, you start getting puffed up, God puts you on the shelf, and he moves on. He won't use you anymore. May God give us grace to be humble. Father, we thank you for giving us such an example through our, through our Savior, Jesus Christ, of true humility. Give us grace, Lord, to follow in Jesus' example, that we not be puffed up with pride thinking who we are, because we have a visible ministry. I'm really something. God must love me more than others. No. We just pray that you give us the heart of just a simple servant who loves to serve you because they just love you. It doesn't matter who's watching. Sometimes it's not a ministry that anybody watches. Just give us grace. Just to be quiet, unassuming servants that will bless your heart. We just long to hear you say someday, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful in a few things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.